All right. Welcome to the Cinephile History Fit Podcast, the tirade-filled movie debate podcast hosted by two film critics, two amazing dads, and two pretty <laughs> shitty teachers. I'm Don Shanahan. <laughs> and I'm William Skinjob Johnson. Oh, see, we're going there already. I we're did damn- it. Folks, we're damn glad to have you. This is all for tantrum's sake, where shared passions and high fives wash away any place for hate. In the end, we encourage you all to love what you love. But for now, the gloves are off and the hissy fit is on. I got a good feeling about this one. This week, folks, we're talking about Blade Runner 2049. It is a sequel and follow-up to last week's episode that talked about 1982's original Blade Runner. This comes recommended by William Big Big Billy Johnson. And uh, <laughs> this is going to be a nice little follow-up from last week. And our format is this, because we have our returning guest back again. The recommending lover, which is going to be William Johnson's going to go first, the hater. And I do dislike this film i will go second and get five uninterrupted minutes to shower well first things first the lover is going to get five uninterrupted minutes to shower their praise and state their high-minded case the hater which is me is going to follow with five uninterrupted minutes of their own to present their counterpoints with any manner of intellectual scorched earth we'll see after that, Ben Calamer is back again to be our tiebreaker guest, and he will have his five minutes of say. After that, we will open it up for shared conversation where the hissy fit will get chippy. We hope you've got your judge's scorecard. I'm really hoping for some help here on this one. I'm pretty sure I'm losing, and that's okay because, folks, let's go. Cool. Uh, so, Ben, uh, just in case no one listened to our last episode, which I assume they are going to because the amount of fanboys and fangirls that, that that basically follow you in your wake. I've seen it at the press screenings. People just flock around you and just want to just even just touch you for, or get a, a, a bit of you just for one second. Uh, just in case anyone ha- wasn't around for the last episode, who are you and what? who's your daddy and what do you do? Well, I I've, I've, I changed into my skin job outfit for uh, this particular episode. The uh, Replicant outfit was uh, uh, at the dry cleaners uh, in between last week and this week. Um, I'm Ben Calamer. I'm a film critic based in the infernal heat that is Phoenix, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a member of the Phoenix Critics Circle. I uh, have written for the Phoenix Film Festival. I write uh, currently, and I forgot to mention this last week, I write for a website called The Cinema Files. Uh, F-I-L-E-S, uh, not P-H-I-L-E-S. Um, I think I just misspelled that, but I, it doesn't matter. Um, I also write for my own website, The Movie Review, R-E-V-U-E. I'm on Facebook. I'm sometimes on Twitter. I'm sometimes on Letterboxd. Uh, and I, I'm not shy about people touching me or wanting a piece of me. Um, just don't find me at my local Denny's wow. at 1030 on Saturday night. Well, and I know this from personal experience because I was so moved one time at a screening of Jumanji, the next level that I reached out and held uh, Ben's hand and it made me feel better. So um, it's true. People want a piece of it. Wow. Yeah. It's the power of the movies, Will. It's the power of the (laughs) the movies. Um, I will say this. Uh, I appreciate that uh, Don introduced the episode as we being two awesome dads. Um, what you may have heard in the last episode was me and Ben were experiencing a dust storm 
uh, in which my youngest daughter was freaking out. So if in the background you happen to hear me going, shut up, I'm trying to record, uh, that's that was me talking to the dog, not the kids. Yeah. So I'm still an awesome dad. Okay, okay. You know, I, I, I felt like that was the time to put shitty dad on there. Or we, I put shitty <laughs> teacher. I put shitty teacher. Okay, we're, all is right in the world. Okay. Oh, we're, my God. No. <laughs> here we go. Here we go. So, gentlemen, we are here to talk about Blade Runner 2049. I am not the lover, so Will Johnson, five minutes, open us up. All right. So, Blade Runner 2049, which came out in 2017, is a sequel to Blade Runner 1982, which takes place in 2019. Uh, Perfectly not confusing, as my hero Ant-Man would say. Yes, Blade Runner 2049 is, to me, a sequel I was very, uh, I was very much looking forward to. Um, but I will, I won't lie, I was kind of thinking, okay, it's going to be, you know, we, we talk about context, and I talked about context in the last episode about how Blade Runner was coming out at the height, at the beginning of the uh, science fiction revolution in film. Um, Blade Runner 2049 is kind of a different beast um, in that uh, around that time. And we're still, I don't want to say suffering from it because there can be good examples of it, but uh, Blade Runner 2049 was coming out at a time when people were, were essentially rebooting or attempting to recreate um, experiences, feelings, and films of yesteryear. So when Blade Runner 2049 was announced, I did have a natural skepticism because I was like, well, it can't touch the original, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And this is just a cash grab, right? But then I remembered the first Blade Runner was not a cash grab. It was, like uh, Ben had mentioned in the last episode, an independently financed film that did not make a lot of money. Um, This one was uh, obviously backed a little bit... uh, uh, Bigger. It's it's a $185 million production. You know, uh, it had Columbia Pictures attached to it, uh, Scott Free Productions, Alcon Entertainment, all these people. And plus it was distributed by both Warner Brothers and Sony. So it's it's kind of a huge deal. Mm -hmm. Um, So you knew they had to be putting something into this. This wasn't just a smash and grab kind of deal to make some money. Uh, And typical of Blade Runner, the first one, Blade Runner 2049, was... I would say for a film like the first Blade Runner, a massive success, but considering that the budget was so high and the marketing was so high, it really never broke even, even though it made north of $200 million. Um, But that's what surprised me the most. My expectations were, okay, we're going down a nostalgia trip, but what I got instead became, to me, my number one film of all time. And I say that with confidence because... um, it was always in my top five upon initial views of it. Um, but I recently saw a screening of it at the Alamo Draft House in Tempe. Um, and I don't know if it was that facility's amazing technical presentation or if I just was in a different frame of mind. But it moved up to the number one spot for me because it hit me on every single level. Anything that Blade Runner did, this one to me did better. And that is from a visual perspective, it hit me. From a sound design perspective, it hit me. But also on the what I talked about last time, a philosophical level. Just like the technology in this film, um, 
is improved from as if as if technology never existed it's hard to explain but if it, basically what existed in 2019 they advanced the technology from that point onwards so there's nobody with cell phones or any of this crazy stuff it was a natural progression as if technology never changed in 1982 and or what 1982's version of 2019 is uh, it naturally developed and the same thing goes for the plot now replicants can live a full life now replicants aren't born they're cre- they were born in the first place but this addresses the concept of what being born is about so we're talking about not only the creation of humanity from the essence of memories and feelings and uh, fate and morality but now we're literally talking about the essence of being born because as uh, Ryan Gosling's character Kay says to be born is to have a soul and Robin Wright's character says you've been doing fine without one of which we feel our first emotional tightening where we go oh man but he has a soul maybe he doesn't but he does to me this film amplifies all the themes of the original Blade Runner maximizes them out makes them better makes them grow makes them tighter makes them more profound it just overall is um, a great sequel, but also a great imp- improvement upon an already excellent, amazing film. All, both films are in my top 10 all time, but Blade Runner 2049 is, without a doubt, my favorite film of all time. That's a tidy good five minutes. Well done, well done, well done. So I can't, I can't go there, man. I... I the, Will calls this movie, and we were having this conversation on social media before we got to this episode. I mean, you know me, and I'm the masterpiece word. I just don't go there. And he calls this a masterpiece. I I cannot. Uh, Denis Villeneuve has made, has made better films. I tell you where this movie is a masterpiece, and I'm one of those people where everybody can get a masterpiece in their life because you know there's different people coming together and all that. You know, just the collaboration that is a film. It, when to call a movie, a masterpiece just for a really Scott or just for a single person is, is it undercuts all the people who make these movies. And this movie is a masterpiece for about six people. One of them is Roger Deakins with amazing Oscar winning and completely deserved cinematography. Mm-hmm. Awesome stuff. Amazing. This movie is a masterpiece for production designer, Dennis Gassner and his set decorator, Alessandra Corzola. I should have won the Oscar. Amazing stuff. The uh, practical sets that you combine with the visual effects are seamless and eye-poppingly amazing, especially when you're coming, like you said, from the watershed that was 1982 and how distinct that movie was designed and how it would be really easy just to overblow all of it and say, hey, it's been 30 years. Look how good filmmaking is. And also, hey, it's been 30 years. Look how good the future is. And this movie is a seamless merger of those things where production design, Dennis Gassner nailed it. Amazing. And the visual effects are pretty top-notch too. I don't know if I call it a masterpiece in any kind of way, but I two and a half pieces of a masterpiece. But this movie, compared to the first, I cannot say it matches. I can say it matches and is worthy of being a follow-up to 82. But it, I, I don't see a spot anywhere other than Deacon's and maybe production design where it exceeds the original uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um the characters just cannot hold a torch to the very first film and i know this was i will open his comments talking about nostalgia and wanting to grab the old 
feelings of old times. And I tell you what, as soon as Harrison Ford shows up, finally a good, interesting character shows up and it took a nostalgia drop to do it. If this was any, if this was any other movie, we would call this movie out for being a nostalgia drop. Like, Oh, the crutch that was, that is needed to bring Harrison Ford in. Now as a sequel, I respect it because if you don't have Harrison, what are you doing? Which is fine. But Ryan Gosling does so little for me. I, I admire the guy as an actor from time to time. I know he gets a lot of shit for being kind of a, a mushy mouth mumbler of a dude who doesn't do a lot of things great. And this is a, it's, I can't say this is a very stretched performance for him, but it, it does not compel me in any kind of way that Harrison's original character did. The ancillary characters and the villains are a step and a half down. There's no one doing what Rutger Hauer can do to really compel you with whether this movie is going. So this movie can look like a zillion bucks. It can have 90 minutes of fucking establishing shots that are shot by the best cameraman on the planet. But other than that, I am so bored and lost and uninspired by what this movie is. It's a very well done film and it looks great and it sounds great. And that's all well and good. But for a person like myself, I it, it, the anchors of emotion and and effect, especially as the every movie has a lesson guy, I just don't get that out of this movie. It looks great and it's a great ex- experiment for all that. But this is another one of those movies like Tree of Life or movies that all these I don't want to say the film bros in the world, but you, I know, I know. But there's all these movies that people put on pedestals just because they look beautiful. And you know what? Things can look beautiful and they can taste like shit. Or they can look beautiful and still be empty inside. And that's where I'm at with this. This is the prettiest looking boring movie I've seen in, yeah, the seven years since The Tree of Life. I'll tip my hat to the looks and aesthetics. But I'm unmoved by anything from a storytelling standpoint. And I wish I was moved better. Maybe that will play better on a rewatch. I couldn't. I, I was not going to sit through 180 goddamn minutes of this movie again to to get ready for this podcast. It deserves it. I get, should give it another chance. But man, I'm a I'm an open minded guy. I'm a heady person who watched it on the big screen in Dolby Atmos, and yeah, it looks the part. It muscles the part. But man, is it it is helium inside, and I got nothing for it. So Ben, be the tiebreaker. I don't have a timer on these five minutes, but I have to be up. It, it, it's interesting because I'm actually going to be a tiebreaker. I sit somewhere in between Will and 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 you, Don. Um, this was actually the first movie that I officially reviewed when I became a member of the press here in Phoenix. So uh, it was interesting to actually sit on my own and, and watch the film. And, you know, I got the feeling of nostalgia. Um, I think the film ran out of gas probably about 45 minutes before it actually ended. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the characters are as strong. I do think the story is um, has its strengths because it it's actually telling a, a story, um, whereas the first film, I think, used the characters to tell the story uh and and that didn't make much sense but essentially 2049 uh the story is talking about the characters instead of the characters actually leading the story did that make sense a little i'm with you okay um 
And so um, it, I agree with you, Don. It's a beautiful movie. Um, I think it, it waxes philosophical. Um, I think its biggest problem is that Denny Villeneuve created too big of a canvas with which to fill and populate characters and the story. And so as a result, where uh, Blade Runner um, is uh, cozy in terms of its storytelling, you are only in a couple of sets or a couple of areas of of Los Angeles. Um, The rain hinders you. Here, uh, it's big, wide open vistas, and we aren't just focused on one area. And I think I think the movie is probably too big for its britches. Um, one of the most interesting things that I got out of both my viewings, like I said in, in last week's episode, I haven't seen 2049 since I saw it at, at that screening. Um, one of the interesting things that I took away from the movie is that uh, my interpretation is that Kay was Roy Batty in this film. Mm. Uh, he had to be the fall guy. Um, but uh, they did a combination with Kay of both Roy Batty and Deckard in that um, Deckard was trying to protect Rachel and in, in Blade Runner. And here he's trying to connect Deckard with his daughter. And I guess that's a spoiler alert if people haven't seen the movie. Sorry about that. Um, it's, uh, you know, I got a Peter and the Wolf vibe. Yeah, I know that's probably, uh, direct, uh, from the film because that's the theme every time, uh, Kay calls up Joy. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a, a Wallace tone, like, uh, the Apple iPhone, uh, uh, theme, uh, if you don't add any music to your ringer or whatnot. Um, but I think it's more than that. Um, the interesting thing that I like about Blade Runner 2049 is that each of the characters are instruments in the movie, similar to what Peter and the Wolf is. And, um, I think one of the most disappointing things is that, uh, um, oh gosh, Wallace, I can't remember the actor, uh, people either like him or hate him. Um, but uh wallace isn't in the movie very much and so thank you um you know i thought they i thought costume design was very very strong but it was very very stark um you know we we went through the open vistas and the environment that villeneuve creates uh but i thought uh aside from the camera work uh and the set design uh, the costumes were just so very striking. It, it, it makes me chuckle that Harrison Ford is in a T-shirt and uh, I think slacks or jeans or cargo pants, something like that. Deckard is very relaxed. And, uh, you know, I, I think I'm rambling at this point, but uh, I'm, I'm not as much of a fan of the film as Will is. I don't necessarily dislike it as much as um, as Don does, uh, simply because of the fact that I think, uh, the aesthetic that Villeneuve created is so interesting to watch. Um, 
I have a Dolby Atmos set up here at home uh, with uh, a 4K TV. And I have to tell you that I, I was drawn in to this film for different reasons than I was drawn into Blade Runner uh, because it's such a beautiful movie. I don't think it's Villeneuve's best film. And frankly, I'm a, I'm, I guess I'd go on record as saying I'm a bit concerned about what he's going to do with Dune, which we mm. get later on this year. Um, but, uh, you know, Villeneuve's aesthetics uh, that he's created for other films are present here. And I appreciate the film. Okay, okay. Cool. cool. So this is All what right. it's like to be betrayed in real time. I understand. You're damn right. right. You're damn right. All right, uh, Will. Will you gotta you gotta try to save this film for us? Help us out here. It's, it's tough, man. Because and if, and if you tell me how pretty it looks, I'll tip my hat, and then I'll be like, okay, but what? Because I've had very very beautiful desserts that taste empty. See, that's the thing is, I I, I saw just as the visuals were a improvement. Not an improvement, but a built like a natural buildup yeah. from 1982. Totally. I think I think the the story is too. I I was never I've never been, I've seen this film five times. I watched mm-hmm. it like two weeks ago. Like I on a big screen again. Um, I adore it. So it, it's I may be a little biased, but to me it feels like a just a natural extension of Blade Runner's themes because. In the first one, you've got the villains, if you want to call them that, um, you know, fighting to be human in the, the short lifespan that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, that's obviously not a problem for replicants anymore yeah. um, because they live forever, but uh, or, you know, seemingly forever. Yeah. Um, and for me, now you take away the most compelling thing about them. But see, that's not see, that's the difference, though, is that like, for instance, you have uh the amazing David Bautista. Thank you. Great actor. I don't care what anybody says. Fantastic actor. Uh, he shows up in the beginning and he has that. He has the same thing Roy does because Roy Batty does in that. Yeah, he has a longer lifespan, but he is hunted. He does have a limit. He does. He and he witnesses what they call a miracle, you know, and mm-hmm. he's his job is his job. His his meaning in life is to make sure that that miracle passes on to the next generations. Um, so when you see him die, even though you just met him, there's so much coming out of that performance that you're just like, man, I really, I really like that guy. Like I really, it sucks that he's dead. Like he really, he has an effect on you. Like, I feel like every character in this movie has that kind of effect. I mean, you get to some of the weird um Choices that they make, and I, I say weird as a, as a point of respect. You have Robin Wright's character, who has a great speech about how there is this invisible wall that exists between what we think of ourselves as human and what we see as something else, the other. Um, and when you when you tell someone that wall doesn't exist anymore, that's when the war starts. Um, she's got this job she has to do, but then she has these moments where, like, for instance, she goes over to Kay's house once. And kind of gives him like, hey, you know, you're a replicant. I'm a human. You're kind of sexy. What would happen if I stayed here and drank all this drink? There's just, just little character moments like that that I really enjoy. They, they do that throughout the whole thing. Um, those are just two tiny examples. But yeah, that's what I'm saying is, is there's, there's a lot of I'm just using those examples to show that there's a lot there's a lot more in the meat of this than a simple archetype or 
story uh like a, a this isn't like a basic character type there's no. a lot of stuff going on and i think even harrison ford personally i think this is one of his best performances as an actor i can um, agree with that uh because he's uh he's very vulnerable uh he's he's doing some stuff he hasn't done in a long time which is you know seeing seeing stuff in his eyes seeing stuff in his face you mm-hmm. know that's not just grumpy <laughs> you know he's right, actually right. emoting things i think gosling who's all who is i think is a great actor um his his build up he has these moments where i i think people could see that as being boring or one note because he's very quiet but yes. he's but he has this moment uh when he finds out well, when he thinks he finds out that his implanted memory is actually real and he thinks he's quote unquote the one where he has this emotional, uh, you know, uh, breakdown where he kicks something and screams and it's so earned. It just feels earned because you're you're building up that anticipation, that building up that intensity to that emotional outburst. Like you don't need to be yelling and screaming and emoting 24 seven to get your point across. You can see this man, even sure. though he's not a man, slowly unraveling. Uh, and then, of course, the big twist is that he isn't the one. It is an implanted memory. He is the story is not about him. That's another reason why I love this story because you have what you think is the hero of your story, and in the end, he's disposable. Uh, and I think that's a fantastic twist. But I, I mean, I, I I'm going to end up uh, ranting on and on in different perspectives. But trying yes, to put were. trying to put what I love about this film, the reason why I bring up those small little examples. The reason why I bring up the big examples of the of the script, the reason you know the things I talk about with the everything transitioning, the good performances, is because it all just kind of flows into my head and makes me think how wonderful this film is. And I just I'm shocked people were bored. I can see like like a like a dude bro being bored, you know, the guy who's like, oh dude, oh oh, bro, there's like no like explosions and stuff. I can see somebody like that being bored, but like yeah. For me, like I was never, I've never, I wanted more. Like I was like, please don't end. Like when, when I first saw it, I yeah. wanted this to go on and on. I was so enraptured with the experience, and it was more than just visuals; it was characters as well. Something about the something about the the, the scene in particular where uh, Kay says, um, "I've never killed anything that's been born before," and she says, "Why is that a big deal?" And he says, "Because to be born is to have a soul." And she says, well, you've been doing fine without one. Mm-hmm. To me, that just hits me right in the gut. Because it's like, yeah, but this guy kind of has a soul, doesn't he? You know what I mean? Like, this is what the replicants are arguing about all this time. They deserve to live because they have souls. It's just, it just hits me in a, in a nice place. Sure. No, I, I, as the every movie has a lesson guy, you know, when you can do the whole what makes us human? When do we start being human? How do you define humanity and the human condition? What comprises a soul? Can souls exist in non-human places? And if so, how? Like, I get all that. And a lot of us, I'm one of those people who thinks I'm not the most religious guy in the world. You know, I go to, I go to church. I've been missionary dated by my wife to do so and all that. But I get to, I get to that place where I'm like, I, I do see those things in other places. I, yeah, I'm not, I watch a nature documentary and I see a caring parent as much as I would a human one and, and that kind of thing. But ah, oh, I, I, I can't squeeze that kind of lemonade out of this movie. I wish I could. I, I, I respect what you're saying. I, I see the the danglings of it no doubt like it's all there but and uh, it's 
it's a frustrating film because the the art oh my goodness the art and the effort is entirely there but it it's ah i, li- I like your term ben too big for his britches it's <laughs> what what was tight and 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 slim and i know implications and, and by the time you come to a sequel and 30 years past that and, and the impl- and the implications of of what transpired before has to reverberate in some way since and it does and i get that but uh i i can't i don't know I I hear you, Will, but you're not selling me. Ben, have you got any wrinkles there? I I think my problem with the film is that it's not as existential as Blade Runner was. That's a great way of putting it. I I agree with Will that the characters are uh, very strongly defined. Um, I was engaged throughout the movie, even though I think it ran out of gas at a certain point. I do like what Harrison Ford did with the film, but I think what 2049 is missing that Blade Runner had um, is an anti-hero. Harrison Ford as Deckard was an anti-hero. K is not an anti-hero because he is so conditioned to live his life as a Blade Runner that he doesn't question anything. He's not allowed to question anything. When he finally questions things and uh, he we are led in this film and I don't think it's the type of story that where we need the lead character to lead us from point A to point B to point C to point D. You know, I can dismiss it a little bit because it it is very procedural. Um, It's less mechanical than Blade Runner. But I think when you have a mechanical film like Blade Runner, you take away the human element, even though this is very much about humans finding themselves as we evolve. And I don't know that the movie really captured the spirit of evolution. Will, you made very good points. I see all of them. Uh, I agree with them. All of those things make the movie work for me. But overall, I think the palette is just too big. Hmm. Okay. There's definitely a thing to be said about, um, like, for instance, one of my favorite sci-fi films, um, I, I put it in my top 20 of the decade uh, when we wrote that, uh, I think it was uh, around 2020, uh, is Dread. Um, Dread is a great example of having a very, like, expanding world, but only focusing on a tiny sliver of it to the benefit of the story. So I get that. Like, and like you guys said in the last episode, Blade Runner takes place pretty much in LA within, I think they called it Ridleyville and the set because it was the New York backlot that they right, just redressed. Right. So there's only like a couple seats. There's only like a couple of actual sets, a couple of actual streets. It is very self-contained. And I think that does help because you're like, man, if it's really shitty here, what's it like everywhere else? I don't, <laughs> right. think, I don't, I don't think Blade Runner 2049 goes too far out of that. I mean, you do see Las Vegas. And what obviously is there was a nuclear meltdown there. You do see some of the outer regions of of California, uh, including like that wall of you know that that the, the dam that's protecting the oceans that are rising from uh, taking over the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I never feel like those are um, used just to be used. Like you know what I mean? They're, they're not. They don't feel like uh, set pieces. They just feel like 
part of the lived in environment. You're just seeing a little bit more. And that happens to be with the budget. I'm sure Ridley Scott would have shown more too, if he had more money, you know sure. what I mean? It's just, I, I didn't, I didn't mind any of that stuff in terms of the existentialism. I, I kind of agree and kind of disagree. Um, I think it's a different type of existentialism. The first one is, is definitely a little bit more, I'm not going to say high stakes, but you have this concept of what it's like to just be alive in general. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you have, you have Sebastian who had that disease that prematurely aged him. You had, so he's a human, but he has premature aging. Um, You've got the replicants who only live for four years. You've got the replicant who can live forever. You've got the, the human who, or who might not be a human. There's kind of a, it's kind of up in the air about like what Deckard is. I think obviously this movie spells it out for us, but the first one has that, that mystery. Be... I, I think he's human. I think he's human too. Yeah. And... I didn't think he was until this movie came out. I, I thought he was a replicant until this movie. And then I was like, okay. But anyway, my point is, is that there, it's more about living life in general what I like about this film is that it's it's about the creation of life, because there's a lot of stuff about we don't we're not worried anymore about the replicants and whether they can live because now they can live, they can have lives, they can have feelings. But it's like what happens when it all comes back to that wall comment? What happens when the other can start reproducing? And and there's the whole thing about no matter how smart Jared Leto is in this movie, mm-hmm. he can't make the technology that can create a um uh, someone that can be born like he can't for some reason he can't do it and does that does that have something to say about the fact that he himself is almost as as manufactured as his products you know he's blind but he can see with his mechanical implants he has no emotion there's a lot to say there's a lot of stuff going on in my opinion yeah. about oh, okay, okay. yeah i i i don't disagree that there's a lot happening is it as much about the creation of life or is it about as much as it is about the preservation of life? Mm, fair question. Mm, that's good. That's a good point. Um, well, yeah, hmm, that's, that's an excellent question because Kay, you, you kind of nailed it best. This is why I like his character. You kind of get the impression that he was made and created. He wasn't born. And he's kind of existing the life that he's supposed to exist in. Um, but by seeing a birth of a replicant child, that's when he begins to question what exactly is his life. And I like the idea that the story of the implanted memories, which actually ended up being real and they ended up being Deckard's daughter's memories, but the, the concept that he thinks he could be something important and he is in the end just the cog in the wheel that he was always. I find that almost a tragedy uh, of storytelling because it's like, holy crap, I love this character, but he, in the end, he means just as much as we thought he did. He's literally just a skin job, you know, that, you know, it just, it, it kind of, I don't know. It just hits me in the emotional front there. Uh, well, and, and, and I think that's why I, they, when they wrote the character, I think that's why they patterned. That's why I think that Kay was the Roy Batty character of the first film. Because Roy Batty was just a, another cog in the wheel, but he had he had grown beyond his programming, his desire for more life, um, just like Kay's desire to learn more. 
there was actually that moment when Kay is doing his research about in the archives where uh, it's discovered that they they like Star Wars. They hid the true nature of, of the offspring in, in the data mm-hmm. and um, they copied um, one uh, data element over to the other to hide uh, the daughter where I thought that they were actually twin. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Because yeah, yeah. she died giving birth, right? And mm-hmm. she, they had to do a C-section. So one could make the fantastic leap that they were twins. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, okay. Interesting. No, no doubt this movie has lots of places to... Lots of tangents and places that you that are that can be explored and have places that are worthy to explore and and is I know we like like Will when you introduced this 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 landed during a time where nostalgia was being pumped like crazy you know we got within the same decade we got a second try and we had these three new Star Wars films you know Star right. Trek was getting its new its new spins and newfangled things and this was a hard time to come out and not look like a nostalgia trip and that yes this by expanding the way it did this film was heady enough to to show that it can matter and, and stand on its own i just yeah it's, Here, here's the one thing i'm gonna argue I'll about t- tip my hat. i'll tip my hat because like it's you know I, and honestly when i saw it at the time I, the visuals wild me enough i gave it four stars out of five review but it, it's one of those movies where that's a i don't want to say it's a pity for because of effort but it feels like one of those the auteur got me more than the the viewer and the fandom and, and like a true a true lover and, and relator to things. Like I just I, I didn't walk away with the heady stuff and I wish I did. I really here's, wish one thing, I did. here's one thing that I I'm not really a big proponent of saying that like films have to be watched multiple times to be appreciated. To me, I, I think that a, too. I, I don't like it because I think that if if there's a good story, it should hold its first time. I'm going to yeah. back 2049. It enthralled me the first time I saw it. But I think mm-hmm. with these Blade Runner films, and I think you obviously showed this in the last episode, you yeah. went into Blade Runner again last time with I this did. expectation that it was going to kind of suck for you, and it ended up winning you over. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that multiple viewings of Blade Runner 2049, uh, especially if you think it's boring, are going to win you over. But I think right. there there are some films that are exceptions to the rule that like I said, every time I watch the original Blade Runner, we're talking 30, 40 years later, I still get something mm-hmm. new out of it. 2049 is the same. I've seen it five times in five years. I usually watch yeah. it once a year. I find something new in it. I get something different out of it. Um, and I think that may happen to both of you guys as well, because yeah. I, mm-hmm. don't I, of, I don't think this is the type of story that just you know, this isn't like a, a Fast and the Furious eight or nine where it's kind of right, disposable right. entertainment. This is something that is meant to kind of, you know, because even if you even if you're you're saying that it didn't work for you or it wasn't as good as the original, you you still think there's something there. I'm getting that oh, totally. impression. Oh no no no! And the aesthetics really help sell that. But and there's something there thematically that I'm not saying I'm missing because I I am also with you. Like 
I think I call that a flaw of a movie. Like if you can't get it the first time and, you know, especially an astute person, I do consider myself a person who's not checking his phone, not watching a movie on a laptop, right. uh, not, not scribbling on a notepad. You know, I still scribble on a notepad, but like I'm there, I'm into it. I'm not watching trailers. I don't come in with really high and, and, and overly constructed expectations in anything. Like it shouldn't be hard to suck me in and wow me over. Uh, boy, say that on a podcast and not get in trouble. Um, ah. <laughs> but um, this is, yeah, this is a movie that I think does count as the exception to the rule. I I will get my window. I will get my chance to watch this again. And I hope it lands better for me. But whew, no, I, I, time. go ahead, Ben. I, I think just like Blade Runner, perspective uh, and your point of view alters how you perceive the film mm -hmm. and so you know like i said i hadn't seen it since it came out in the theater i watched it with another set of eyes i could be biased because i watched the first film i i did i did the double feature um both of them with no home. break yeah and so uh i don't i don't think my my reaction to the film has changed but i think i've grown in the past couple of years and so um i again i i still it, it's got its flaws uh but i i think these are two films where your your state of mind your level of knowledge your acceptance of the human condition mm -hmm. is going to alter how you interpret the film and yeah. I think that's one of the greatest compliments that I can pay to both films for many different reasons. Uh, why both films are um, are if I were if I were somebody who were to rank films, both films would rank uh, highly for me. Um, but I don't think they'd be in my top. Uh, I don't think Blade Runner twenty forty nine would be in a top twenty. Yeah, same here. I mean, that's it. I tell you what, that's as good a place to end and kind of put some closing thoughts there, folks. So I, I, I'm, I'm good with my closure here. You guys, I'll leave the table to you here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of these things where it's, uh, it, it's not like the Marvel films where I, I, I take those very personally <laughs> because mm. there, there's Marvel has been such a part of my life since I was able to basically breathe for the first time. I mean, it's been part of my life. So I get a little defensive about the Marvel stuff. So I'm not going to be all upset that no one likes Blade Runner 2049 as much as I do. Um, you guys are smart guys. You obviously see the value in it. You're obviously, mm. you obviously see less of it than I do. And that's totally fine. Uh, you know, the fact that we can even have a conversation about it in a respectful way makes me very happy because like I said, this took a long time, but this, this moved into my number one spot uh, as of the last two weeks. So man, I, I and I respect you for your your take on the film and your appreciation of it. Uh, I I don't I don't think it detracts from Villeneuve's uh, oeuvre. Um, I think he was the right director for the film. Um, I do too. I just I I think I again I keep going back to the the canvas was too big and. Um, I think it lost some of its steam. It, it's interesting because um, there was a lot of hype and anticipation for this film, mm -hmm. and it died down in the box office probably two, three weeks after it was released. And you don't hear as many people talking about it as you do the original film. 
True. That's true. Well, let's see if time can do something with it here, fellas. In the meantime, our time is up. Yes. So, um, looks like, Ben, you you kind of uh, gave us all of your info at the beginning of the episode. So, if if anyone needs to rewind and figure out where Ben comes from, where he's at, you can find him. He, he lists it all in the beginning of the episode. For us here at Cinephile Hissy Fits, follow us on Twitter at Cinephile Fits and on Facebook at Cinephile Hissy Fits Podcast. Also find us both on Letterboxd or find all three of us on Letterboxd. Uh, maybe, just maybe, we will post a poll matching this episode for you listeners to weigh in on who you think made the most compelling argument to win the Cinephile Hissy Fit. I think we're 17 episodes in now and we haven't done one yet, but maybe, just maybe, is why we put that in there. Thank you so much for your captive audience and social media participation. Cinephile Hissy Fits is a 25YL media podcast. It is brought to you by RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Please visit, rate, review, and subscribe. If you enjoyed this show, we have more where that came from with interesting hosts and more wonderful wonderful guests. And I have to thank Ben. Ben is our first guest. He's on two episodes, and he's fantastic. Please check out his stuff. He's one of the smartest guys out there for film. You will not be disappointed with whatever take he has. All available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you find your favorite shows. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Ben, you're welcome back anytime. We'll have a good one to go into Alright guys, see ya. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futures Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com.